Our scripture this morning is found in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? And in view of his appearing and of his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers and to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, amen. You can always say amen when God's word is read, right? Thank you, Terry, for reminding us of that. Okay, uh, so we're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew this morning. I want to begin with a story uh, which took place between uh, my junior and my senior year of college. Uh, I did an internship with a campus ministry called Disciple Makers. If you uh, remember from my testimony, this is a big part of my testimony. Uh, and I really, I had a great experience uh, serving the Lord in that way that summer. I learned a lot about uh, God and, and what he was calling me to do with my life and what he was not calling me to do with my life. Um, but I, I still remember uh, one night in particular that summer uh, where I didn't uh, really feel God's presence with me. Maybe you've felt this way at some point in your life. I, you know, I was serving uh, God that summer. I was volunteering with the ministry, and the ministry I had opportunities to uh, share the gospel with college kids, uh, you know, on, on college campuses. And it was a spiritual high for me, right? And, and it should have been that. And so I was caught off guard by this particular low point in my life. You know, why, why didn't I feel God's presence with me? And so I went out one night and I just, just kind of walked. You know, maybe you've done this at some point. You know, you just need to get out, right? And so I didn't really have a plan. I didn't know where I was going. Uh, I just went. And I was hoping that as I walked, as I talked with God, and as I listened, you know, that he would reveal something about what was going on to me. And so here's what God said to me while I was on that walk. Nothing. <laughs> you know, you might have thought that this story was coming to like a big revelation. You know, I heard an audible voice. Uh, I didn't hear anything from God as I walked. You know, I did a lot of talking, uh, but I also did a lot of listening. So it's not that I wasn't listening for God's voice. I was. And so you know, maybe you've had an experience like this as well. Right? You've been seeking God. You've been trying to hear his voice. And uh, you're seeking him in an honest way. And you just didn't get an answer. You've been wondering why. So as I reflect on that night, I've actually come to realize that uh, God not answering me is probably the best thing that he could have done for me. Uh, and so that's, uh, we'll get to that point in the sermon. So let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll uh, take a look at our passages in the book of Matthew. Father, this morning we're reminded um, 
of your love for us. We're reminded that you care for us. We thank you that you've given us uh, our personal stories, each and every one of us. We thank you for your word, that you revealed to us your heart for us and your word. So we pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word this morning. We continue to uh, pour into your word through this series in the book of Matthew. May we see your son Jesus for who he truly is and what he wants from us. So may you speak through me this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 26. That's where we started off last week. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the pew in front of you. Uh, And so today... In Matthew chapter 26, uh, we'll be looking at verses 36 through 75, which is a lot. (laughs) That's almost 40 verses. Uh, So there's a lot of material to cover, and we'll move through it kind of quickly. Uh, But there's a lot here, uh, and so my challenge to you uh, this coming week will be to look back uh, through these things, because I, I can't cover everything in these 40 verses in this sermon. All right, so today's passage uh, is split up into four parts, since it's so long. We have four parts this morning, and I'm breaking from my usual three. Um, you can think of these as three points, or three lessons to be learned from this sermon. We'll talk about Jesus, the overwhelmed one, in verses 36 through 45, or through 36 through 46. Jesus, the betrayed one, in verses 47 through 56. Jesus, the accused one, in verses 57 through 68. And then finally, Jesus, the disowned one, verses 69 through 75. You can see those on the outline in your bulletin if you have one. Uh, let me open us by reading uh, that first section, Matthew 26, 36 through 46, for us. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, He again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I'll stop reading for us there. And so this is, you know, the the one time in preaching where you have a really good visual representation of what's going on. 
we have this wonderful painting behind me. <laughs> uh, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Jesus praying here in this passage. And so the story picks up here. Uh, if you were with us last week, you uh, remember we've been leading up to Jesus' death. Uh, and so this happens right after Jesus has told his disciples that they will deny him. And so he goes with them, with his disciples, to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells them to stay where they are, but he takes three of them, the inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, with him while he goes away to pray. And this is it's not really an unusual thing for Jesus to do, right? He's done this throughout his ministry. Sometimes he'll go alone to pray. Sometimes he'll take some of his disciples with him to pray. But this time, you know, why doesn't Jesus go alone uh, to pray these prayers? I think Jesus, uh, he wants his friends, his disciples, to be with him in his time of trouble. Jesus is going through something difficult. He wants his friends to be with him uh, so that they can bring comfort to him, right? He, He doesn't want to be alone in his time of suffering. And so this is why when he returns and he sees that his disciples have fallen asleep, he, he begins to be upset with them. But Jesus also wants his disciples to witness what is going to happen to him. If Jesus is going to be arrested, then he wants his disciples there to witness him being arrested. And so uh, they can go and tell others what has happened to him. But the words that Jesus uses here to describe how he is feeling are significant. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's saying, and this is me paraphrasing, I'm so sad that I feel like I'm going to die. The weight of what Jesus is about to go through, what he's about to do, is weighing on him. It's literally breaking his heart. Jesus' description of his emotional state uh, then leads us into the words that he prays. First, he prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. He knows that this must happen to him, but he still asks God to take it away from him. He's asking this because of that emotional weight that he feels, right? It doesn't feel good for Jesus to feel this way. So he asks God to relieve him of that. See, often this is the part that we miss about Jesus' suffering, right? Jesus suffered physically on the cross, right? When Jesus was whipped, he suffered physically. Uh, But Jesus also underwent immense emotional suffering as well. And so he closes his first prayer uh, by submitting to God's will and not to his own. Then he comes back and he goes to pray a third time or a second time. He says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So this time it's a bit different. Jesus kind of flips it around. It's kind of the the negative side of, of his first prayer. And his his only request the second time is is for God's will to be done. He says, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, may your will be done. And then third, it says that he prays the the same thing. 
But here we have Jesus' humanity on full display. Right? We know that Jesus was fully human. And in his moment of anguish, he cries out to God. And he asks God to take this away from him. Not only does he ask God to take it away from him, he asks God to take it away from him three times. And what's significant is, uh, this is where we tie back to my opening story, is that we don't see an answer from God here. Nothing but silence comes from God in response to Jesus' prayer. It's almost as if, uh, as Jesus is praying, right, he's putting the request before God, but then he says, may your will be done. It's almost as if he's starting to realize uh, that this is the thing that God wants him to do. And this is really uh, an incredible lesson on prayer from Jesus. Even in his moment of anguish, he's teaching us something. He's teaching us it's okay to be broken. It's okay to be distraught. It's okay to be overwhelmed in the face of a difficult circumstance. It's okay to to feel sad. It's okay to feel like your heart is breaking. But as Jesus did, that sorrow should drive us to the point uh, where we are crying out to God. Right? Jesus prayed these things to God on his knees with his face to the ground. And once we're there, it's okay to ask God to take the sorrow away from us. Whatever it is that is afflicting us, we can ask God time and time again to to take it away. But we always have to end our prayers with, with this line from Jesus. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Because we need to realize that God might not answer our prayers. God didn't answer Jesus' prayer here. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't always have what's best for us in mind. On the night that I didn't feel God's presence and I heard nothing from him, he didn't answer me, I came to the point where I realized that that was okay. Because I needed to believe what was true about God, even if I didn't hear from him directly, even if I didn't feel his presence with me. And I think this is kind of what God's silence meant for Jesus too, right? If God answered Jesus' prayer, if God took the cup from Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have died, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised from the dead, and we would not have eternal life in him, right? God's not answering of Jesus' prayer has led to the salvation of the world. So maybe if God hasn't answered your prayer yet, if there's something that you've been praying time and time again, time and time again, something you've been asking God to take away from you, maybe God has something better in mind for you that is yet to come. So God doesn't answer Jesus' prayer. And so Jesus' betrayer comes. Let's move on to our next point for this morning. Jesus, the betrayed one. Let me read verses 47 through 56 for us this morning. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. 
With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And so Judas, who we saw last week in our story, uh, who traded 30 pieces of silver for Jesus' life, here he comes to betray Jesus. And the signal that they had devised before uh, to, so that the crowd could see uh, who Jesus was uh, is a kiss. Last week we saw Judas call Jesus rabbi, which means teacher, and here he does it again, uh, and Jesus replies by calling him friend. Now this would have been uh, deeply offensive for Jesus to have to go through, right? Not only is he being betrayed, but, but there's a little bit of spite here from Judas coming, right? The, uh, how can Judas approach Jesus with, with a greeting of a kiss, with a straight face, knowing what he's doing, calling him rabbi, all while betraying him? But there's no spite in return from Jesus. I think Jesus truly means friend when he calls Judas friend here. And so Jesus is arrested. One of Jesus' companions, though it doesn't say who, uh, most think it's Peter, uh, they step forward uh, and they cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Uh, But Jesus corrects what this person does. He says this is not how followers of Jesus handle these things. And Jesus points to the irony of this whole situation. With Judas comes a large group of people who are armed with swords and clubs. They're they're ready for violence. They're ready for a fight. And this is uh, completely ridiculous for a couple reasons. One, if Jesus did want to fight, he would win the fight easily. Right? What makes them think that uh, this man who has cast a whole host of demons out of a person into a herd of pigs, right? he's raised people from the dead, what makes them think that they could uh, approach him with swords and clubs? And Jesus points to this irony. He says that he could call down 12 legions of angels if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. Jesus, because of his prayer time with God in the garden, knows that this must happen. It's completely ridiculous for a second reason, uh, because Jesus has done nothing over the course of his ministry uh, to deserve something like this and to make them think that he would fight them over his arrest. 
It was common for people to think that Jesus was leading some sort of military rebellion against Rome, but Jesus addresses this with the crowd, right? He says, all I did was teach in the courts, and you didn't arrest me. But Jesus allows himself to be arrested because he knows that his arrest will lead to his death. And he knows that this is the only way for us to be saved. His willingness to do that is a result of his prayer. Jesus needs to be betrayed because he is paying not just for the betrayal of Judas here, but for the betrayal of all people, past, present, and future. It's really easy to look at the story of Judas and uh, to point the finger at him. We talked about this last week. Uh, But in a way, all of us are like Judas sometimes. When we sin, we betray Jesus too. When I willingly choose to do something that I know is against what Jesus would have for me to do, I am no different from Judas who is exchanging 30 pieces of silver from Jesus' life. Judas saw that 30 pieces of silver was worth more to him than Jesus was. And for us, we exchange lots of things for Jesus too. It could be money, it was for Judas. It could be sex, it could be power, it could be influence, it could be pleasure. It could be a whole multitude of things that we trade in exchange for what Jesus wants for us. Jesus offers us life hope, joy. The ultimate satisfaction is found in him, but we don't always see that. And when we don't see that, it's easy to betray him. But not only is Jesus betrayed, he is then accused of things that he has not done. Let's move on to our next point for this morning. Jesus, the accused one, I'll keep reading in verses 57 through 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? 
So now that Jesus has been arrested, he goes to stand trial before the Jewish leaders, which is called the Sanhedrin, uh, and before Caiaphas, the high priest. And they begin to look for evidence against Jesus because they they want him dead, uh, and many come. They they give false witness, it it says, uh, but they can't find anything against him because there isn't anything Jesus knows that, they know that, but they want to kill him anyway. And so finally, two people come forward, and they remind the Jewish leaders of what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple, and we find that story in in the book of John, chapter 2. It says this, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. So Jesus, he he did say this, but he was talking about himself, not about the Jewish temple. He was actually pointing to what is going on here in this trial. And so Caiaphas, he wants Jesus to respond to this accusation so that he can trap him, uh, but Jesus doesn't respond. So Caiaphas wants Jesus to claim uh, what Caiaphas already knows Jesus has said about himself. He says, tell us you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus, he doesn't necessarily say it, though he, he does say it. He says, you have said so. Then Jesus quotes from Daniel Chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Jesus is saying, this is me. Prophesied in the book of Daniel, this son of man is here before you. And this is something that the Jewish leaders were supposed to be looking forward to. They were supposed to be looking for this Messiah who would come and save them, but instead they're threatened by him. And they're actively working against him. So the Jewish leaders, they take offense. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Because of that, their accusation is that he is worthy of death. But they don't just stop there, right? They, they take it another step forward. They make fun of him. They spit on him. They punch him. They slap him, then they mock him, right? They ask him to tell them which one hit him. And the irony of, of that statement is that Jesus could, right? Jesus could tell them exactly each time who it was that hit him or spit on him or slapped him. 
But Jesus is going to the cross to die to save them anyways. See, despite Jesus' ability to save himself, he willingly allows himself to be beaten, mocked, and scorned at his own expense. He does this for us. He does it for our sake. See, Jesus doesn't respond when he's accused because he's going to the cross willingly. He's allowing this to happen to him. Jesus is fully capable of defending himself here, right? Jesus could have reasoned with them better than anyone could in the courts. He could have provided uh, any amount of evidence to change their minds. He, He knew their hearts and could change their hearts in an instant, but he doesn't. He's going to the cross because he knows what he has to do. Not only is Jesus accused, he is then disowned by one of his closest friends. Let's look at our last point for this morning. Jesus, the disowned one. Let me read verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again, with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. And so Peter has been sitting outside of the courtyard. He's been watching and listening to all of this happen. And we know that Peter and Jesus were incredibly close. And last week we heard from Peter, he adamantly denied that he would ever betray or disown Jesus. And so these people who are gathered there outside, they see Peter and they begin to question him. First, it's a servant girl that comes up to him. And Peter's first act of disowning Jesus, he kind of deflects. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. So he lies because he does know what she's talking about. Second, another servant girl comes up to him. Peter moves uh, to a state of ignorance. He says, I don't know the man. And so he lies again because he does, in fact, know Jesus. Lastly, a third group of people, a whole uh, crowd comes up to him. and They point to his accent. And so Peter tries to distract them, right? He says, I don't know the man, but he starts calling down curses and, and swearing to them that he doesn't know Jesus. Peter goes through all these great lengths to disown Jesus because he has just watched what has happened to Jesus before the Sanhedrin, right? Peter is paralyzed with fear. He becomes desperate. And if Jesus has uh, just been arrested and killed, then the next logical step is for uh, these people to come after Jesus' followers. And Peter, at this point, he's not willing uh, to bear the cup that Jesus has to bear, right? the cup that Jesus talked about in the garden. So he disowns Jesus. 
And so this is why this set of passages begins with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has a choice. His choice is, will I endure what is to come? Jesus' answer is yes. And Peter also has a choice. Will I endure what is to come? And Peter's answer at this point is no. Later in his life, his answer would be yes. And so you could, you know, I could preach entire sermons on each of these sections. There's so much here. But here is where they all come together, here at the end. Jesus was willing to go through all of this for us. And if it seems dark, if it seems like, you know, this is kind of a downer of a sermon, right? This is because we're leading up to Jesus' death. Yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but we need to realize the things that Jesus went through for us. Jesus was so sad that he felt like he was going to die. He was betrayed by one of his followers. He was accused by the Jewish leaders who were supposed to accept him and and want him to come. He was disowned here by one of his closest friends. And yet Jesus, he was willing to go through all of that for our sake. Through all of this, Jesus is asking the question, I went through all of this for you. Are you willing to go through this for me? It's a question that all of us need to be able to answer. See, when things get hard in our lives, it's so easy to turn our backs on Jesus. But praise God that we have this account of Jesus' life. Because we can look to the things that he did for us. We can be thankful for them. We can be grateful for them. And we can be reminded of what we may be asked to do for his sake. As I was preparing for uh, this morning, I I couldn't help but think of our love offering for the Bishwadas. You know, this kind of uh, suffering seems so foreign to us. But it's so familiar for others who are sharing the gospel in other parts of the world. And so this is a commitment uh, that we need to make. Can we, as a people, as individuals, say, I'm willing to do for Jesus what Jesus has done for me. Jesus did this for our sake so that the people of the world may be saved. That was his goal. That should be our goal as well. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, this morning, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us. So often in our lives, we lose sight of this. We forget because we're forgetful. But this is such an amazing act of love from Jesus. That he was willing to go through these things for our sake. He did it because he loved us. He still loves us. So our challenge is to be grateful for these things. But also to remind other people of their Savior, 
of what Jesus did for them. And God, as Jesus did, may we go to you in our times of suffering, in our times of need. May we know that we're never alone in our times of trouble. May we know that Jesus can relate to us if we suffer. God, may we never lose sight of this. May we never lose sight of what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.